You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation okay. and Attachment, deepening your practice. Um, it is 7.35 p.m. Pacific time, uh, February 11th, 2021. And uh, we're uh, going to be doing compassion practice for self this morning. Um, some uh, people have suggested that we do the meditation at the beginning of the class, and then I, I, I can talk at the end of the class. Um, but I thought that I would do an informal uh, um, uh, vote up or down on it, understanding that this is, of course, not a democracy and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> So everybody in favor of meditating first, raise your hand. Everybody in favor of the talk first, raise your hand. All right. So the talk first one, um, in, in face of many abstentions from, from the, the process. So uh, we're going to do some practice for compassion for self and um, I find that that's an interesting thing because compassion, I, I think of uh, as a, um, I'm just gonna mute everybody. Um, compassion, uh, I think of as an empathetic uh, process, but when you're uh, connected to yourself, you don't need to be empathetically connected to yourself because you're in the experience of the self. So if we were to examine what, what would the purpose of this uh, compassion practice for self-being, uh, then what I think actually it is, is this opening to the experience of all aspects of the self and not the need to uh, suppress or deny certain aspects of the self uh, experience. Um, sometimes um, we can grow up and um, have the experience of some aspects of ourselves being unwanted. Um, and in childhood, often what we uh, do in that experience is to um, um, make those aspects of ourselves bad or not worthwhile. Um, and it isn't a fair evaluation in terms of what actually those qualities represent. It's actually a reflection of what our caregivers uh, are comfortable with or not comfortable with. Um, and uh, how they respond to those uh, experiences. If you've been around small children, you may notice that they're extremely demanding for attention and care. And if you have good enough caregivers when you're young, of course, they're able to adapt to that and meet the, your needs in a way that uh, you feel a, a sense of wholeness, a sense of, uh, of of being a delightful, valuable human being. And if they meet you in a different way uh, and you become fearful about expressing certain aspects of yourself, then you begin to suppress the awareness of them or to restrict your willingness to express them because uh, it, it causes you to feel frightened uh, with the attachment relationship. Some uh, caregivers are very controlling and very strict in how they want their children to uh, reflect of themselves. Uh, and so any aspects of the, uh, of the child that they find troublesome, they uh, try to change or temper. Children experience uh, the, the need to be different than the way that they are uh, as difficult to integrate. And often the suppression of the, um, the parts of themselves that are unwanted in that original relationship take on a negative aspect if they're still allowed into consciousness. And oftentimes uh, they're so problematic for the child that the child suppresses uh, awareness of them consciously or they restrict what is able to come into consciousness. And so I really think that this uh, practice of self-compassion is to open to the possibility of allowing all information about uh, your self-experience, what you desire, what you like, what you don't like, 
to be unrestricted in, in its possibility of entering into consciousness. Understanding that um, <clears throat> we are conditioned beings and that we create a conceptual version of reality, um, that the process of creating and selecting how that uh, conceptual reality will appear largely happens unconsciously. And so that if you restrict awareness in consciousness of any aspect of your experience, then conceptual reality is made without it there. And there's no real evidence of it. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this so that it makes real sense. If you look at a picture and it looks like a complete picture, but before the picture is shown to you, certain elements are removed from it, then how do you know in monitoring the picture of things what wasn't included? And that's really this piece, I think, where self-compassion is so useful in this uh, constant allowing of our experience to come into consciousness so that we don't restrict the knowing of certain aspects of ourselves. Um, and then depending on what kind of attachment conditioning that you had, uh, you may notice uh, more severe restrictions as you begin to attempt to open this up. Uh, for instance, uh, dismissing uh, somebody who has a dismissing attachment strategy will have an extremely restricted uh, uh, capacity to experience all of themselves because they're so... Uh, uh, used to suppressing awareness of emotion, which is often an indicator, and they have a tendency to idealize. And so they're used to creating these uh, incomplete uh, versions of conceptual reality. And because they suppress the emotional aspect, there's no contrary evidence to the creation that they've made. Um, there might be some confusion about what drives them, or there might be some uh, extreme outbursts of anger in defense of the, the conceptual reality that they've created, but the, the wisdom mind informing them what, what's missing is not allowed into uh, awareness to be examined. <clears throat> Jung famously called this the shadow, of course, the shadow of self the shadow of experience, the, the darker aspects of sometimes are split off depending on how whole your experiences have. Trauma often leads to a kind of dissociation, so pieces are scattered in multiple groups. When we talk about this whole picture of us, we're talking about uh, uh, one central database uh, and all uh, data that's in the database is then allowed into consciousness. That would be a completely integrated experience. But if you have certain aspects, for instance, of yourself that uh, uh, are restricted because of the, the preferences of caregivers and the, the circumstances of early childhood, you may find that you have the one central database and then certain aspects of it are split off into sub-databases of it. Sometimes you find yourself in one of them and, and it's very different than the ordinary sense of the way you are. Um, sometimes uh, the splits can be so deep that there's more than one database and you move in between each of the databases and it really does create a whole different perception of the self in the world based on that. And you could have sub-databases in each of the databases, then you could have more than one database, more than two databases, which makes experience very fractured. So we would say uh, uh, PTSD would be the, the experience of one database with sub-databases. Complex uh, PTSD would be more than one. Uh, um, split off piece, uh, some kind of dissociative disorder would be more than one uh, database. 
is that making sense? I'm, I'm trying to relate this experience. Um, so in the practice of compassion, we're opening to the possibility of allowing all aspects of ourselves into consciousness so that we can then hold the suffering experience of ourself. So compassion in the Buddhist sense is uh, narrowly focused around suffering. And when we apply it to ourselves, we're opening to our own suffering experience, allowing all of it into consciousness so that we can then attend to our own suffering through action that is meant to relieve the suffering. I sometimes hear people talk about this in a way that sounds more like bypassing the suffering or in some sense, reinforcing a kind of narcissism that is not actually what I want to indicate here. We're opening to suffering so that we can attend to the suffering and relieve the suffering, which means that we need to examine it and understand in a coherent way what happened to us and how it might be resolved rather than simply not attending to it or bypassing it, uh, or uh, in some ways reinforcing the restrictions of, of knowing. And sometimes it's described as a kind of self-care, which is uh, a delay or uh, not attending to the suffering. Sometimes it's reinforcing aspects which are um, not helpful. An example of that might be, um, I had a, a dear friend who had rather severe uh, physical abuse when he was a child. And his way of addressing it was to say that that, that uh, experience toughened, toughened him up and made him the man that he was, and that actually it had been a good thing for him. But when you match that up with the, with the way that he behaved in the world, it drove very unethical behavior on his part, um, uh, which was a, a way of relieving that suffering. So we want to be able to see clearly the conditions uh, in which we are in um, and to then be able to attend to it in a way. Is that all making sense in terms of that? nature because in a typical uh, empathetic experience with someone else you, you have somebody outside of yourself that you connect to and we have these three layers of empathy that we talk about one is the visceral response to somebody else's physical or emotional pain when we're talking about compassion for ourselves how do you respond typically to a visceral experience of your own physical or, or emotional pain and is it an opening toward that and an allowingness of it and then attending to it? Or is it, is a, is it an automatic restriction of, of not wanting to really know about it or deal with it? Um, can we think about it coherently? Uh, preoccupied people tend to be very spontaneous without much monitoring. And so they uh, can get emotionally very dysregulated and it drives a lot of behavior that creates difficulties in interpersonal relationships that they have. But they have no capacity to understand that um, the emotional dysregulation that they experience is what causes the behavior that creates the problem in relationships. And it creates a sense of confusion for them. And so this really is uh, this opening and monitoring of what's actually happening in this sense of allowing. Um, the second layer of, uh, uh, or the second dimension of empathy is to be able to look at somebody and to read their uh, body language and facial expressions and interpret that to mean, uh, or, or interpret that as a representation of what their internal experience is. So it creates a sensitivity to knowing how to read somebody else, the external expression of somebody else's experience. Um, there aren't these big universal uh, emotional experiences. Um, uh, there is, uh, through Paul Ekman's work, this idea that there are seven basic fundamental emotional expressions that you can identify, but 
often we feel a mixture of emotions and so the expressions vary quite a bit and they're not pure or easy to identify necessarily. And so we need to be open to the dialogue with the other person so that they can explain to us what that representation means to them and so that we can then compare it to what it means to us and negotiate a shared definition of it. Um, <clears throat> an example that was uh, given in one of the uh, trainings on this that I did was that suppose that you grow up in a family where three times in the course of the 18 years that you lived at home, somebody raised their voice. Uh, and you, you're going out with somebody who grew up in a family where every night at dinner, everybody just yelled at, over each other to have a conversation um, and then got up and did the dishes and everybody was fine with that. And then how do you respond to negotiating the meaning of the raised voice between those two uh, definitions? Of it? Then, of course, when we're talking about self-compassion, we're talking about that inquiry within ourselves. How do we let ourselves in to know what we're thinking, what we're feeling? Are we able to monitor our thought processes and understand that? Do you ever uh, find a sense of confusion around what it is that actually is happening in a moment based on uh, your reaction to things? Uh, do you have a strong reaction to something and, and can you uh, coherently understand why you're reacting in the way that you're reacting to that experience? Can you do it in real time? Do you have to reflect backwards? Um, do you simply not reflect backwards because uh, it puts you in touch with things that are, are too difficult? Um, and so that self-compassion comes in to, to create the space where you can actually hold all of that experience and then begin to examine it so that you can be effective in responding to it, uh, that compassionate uh, opening. The third level of empathy is where you're, you're able to feel compassionate empathy in your body, a facsimile of what the empathetic experience of the other person is, what their internal feeling state is, you know, because you have a physical representation of it in your body, which you can differentiate from your own emotional experiences. Um, and uh, really in, in an effective, compassionate experience of someone else, you bring your capacity to emotionally regulate to the empathetic experience. And then as it's transmitted back to the person, they get their, uh, an awareness of their own emotional experience in a more regulated state as part of the empathetic experience of you. Um, <clears throat> so um, when it comes to yourself, do you allow yourself the knowledge of your moment-by-moment -moment emotional experience? And do you have good resolution with it so that you know how you're reacting to the situation at hand? And then do you have the capacity to regulate that emotional experience for yourself? This would be a kind of mastery of your own uh, emotional experience. Why this would be so important in terms of uh, the the search for meaningfulness in life, of course, is that if you can't regulate your own experience, if you can't hold yourself in this compassionate embrace long enough to explore at a, at a deep level, you're uh, not going to pursue deep exploration and begin to restrict or limit the meaningfulness that your uh, life has. Is that making sense? In order to explore and in order to explore deeply, you need to be able to regulate your own experience and move forward. You need to be able to see how you're reacting in real time to the experiences that you're having and, and being able to respond skillfully to them. That's, I think, part of this process of self-compassion and really opening and allowing all aspects, all responses to the conditions of the present moment to come into awareness without restriction. There is the issue of bandwidth, of course, in this. Um, consciousness is a very narrow bandwidth. Uh, the, there's a French group of neuroscientists I quite 
like their research that said that the overall capacity of the human body-mind to pick up data is about 11 million bits per second, but consciousness is only 16, one six. So you know very little anyway about what's really happening. And the better you know it, the, the, the more data in some sense uh, uh, is available to understand what's actually happening. Well, we do, of course, need to hold an ethical stance in the world. But if we are not uh, allowing ourselves knowledge of what contradicts that or what drives behavior that's in conflict with that, it's harder to regulate those um, um, behaviors and stay within those, that ethical uh, bandwidth. So there's a lot of pieces here that I've been talking about that come together for this. Um, there's a, a sense of emotional clarity. There's four aspects of that that you wanna be clear about. One is the, your emotional reaction to the present moment. One is the self-generated emotional uh, activity in the body that comes from your thought process. One is the somaticized emotional experience, which is the old stuff that some people hold in their body because they haven't had time um, or bandwidth to process it and release it. And then the fourth is the empathetic experience. And when you're practicing formally, any compassion practice, really the empathetic experience is not really online because you're uh, in, in an internal focused stance. It's only when you're externally attending to someone else that you have an empathetic experience. But if you develop good clarity with the other aspects of that, then the empathetic experience tends to stand out more. So face, front of the throat, front of the torso, inside of the arms here, inside of the legs, the vibratory energy, which is emotional. Thought produces emotion in the same arena, and that's why it can be regulating. You engage in a thought, it generates an emotion that plays in the same arena as the reaction to the present moment. But we can generate much more intense uh, reactions, often thinking than we're than our than we are naturally reacting to the present moment. And so the experience becomes the the dominant experience becomes the thought process, not the reaction to the present moment. It's a way of regulating, uh, tuning in and tuning out the experience of the present moment. The somaticized emotion are these emotional centers. They're typically in the beginning, as you become aware of them, contractive energy that releases waves of emotion. And those waves can be quite intense depending on what, what uh, the pool is and how activated it is. Can you hold that space of the old afflictive emotions that haven't been released yet um, with enough tender, tenderness that you allow them to release? over time, another aspect of this. Is that making sense enough? Um, hi, George, um, this is Mike. Yep. Um, uh, oh my God, you're telling my life story. Uh, I um, have multiple fronts of confusion. So initially, uh, you know, my mom was very angry and she was pregnant with me. And then um, I had a difficult birth and, uh, and, then she, and then she lashed on to me emotionally. Right. And it was, then there was a divorce at five. Um, you know, I don't know what happened early on. So, uh, and then my mom attaches to, you know, another man and then my dad goes off and attaches to another woman. So I've got two other circles around me and, and then, um, then it's I'm the youngest of three, so um, that was you know complicated itself. So I yeah, there's just so many things that were very confusing. And right. There's you know lots of uh, emotional, physical, and covert uh, hostility, abuse type things. Uh, but the thing you know that was just the roadmap. Um, my emotional state just hangs on my sleeve, and I, you know I. 
really have a very difficult time communicating with people in regards to how I, uh, my emotions are played out in my head and, and things are just so fragmented. You know, there's ADD in there and there's uh, uh, dyslexia comes out some, you know, a lot of times. So right. people don't even understand me. So, you know, you know it's really been last <laughs> four years, even beside COVID, I've been isolating like you wouldn't believe. And I've been through a couple of treatments uh, and still no luck, uh, just trying to find the, the, you know, the source here. And, and what, what I'm hearing is, is, is hitting the head on the hammer. My, my, my current experience is my 79-year-old mother is, is living with me. I'm, I've actually managed to make a living on my own and, and been able to uh, acquire a um, retirement plan. Um, so I'm secure. And um, but we've been co-addictive since 1973. You and your mother. Yes, we smoked pot for the first time uh, when I was 12 years old. Um, yeah, 1973. So um, uh, you know she spent 20 years in Belize to get away from me, so to speak. But uh, we, I was still tied to her as an umbilical home base for her. Um, can you relate this to self-compassion? The compassion is all over the place, but mostly it's shame. Uh, the I, I don't know where to find the compassion is the thing. I mean, I, I, I meet some people here and there that, you know, I can really feel, uh, you know, a, a soothing energy from, but mostly people uh, pick up on this, this uh, I don't know what the vibe is that I'm sending. It's just there's a shame, there's an anger, and there's a um, um, guilt, and people pick up on it and just vilify me about it, and and I'm constantly attacked. Um, so, so, so let me talk about something um, which is coming to mind. Uh, the Grice's maxims. Um, have you heard me talk about them before? Maybe, yeah. So um, Paul Grice was a philosopher and he analyzed conversation and he came up with these four um, maxims of the nature of uh, human conversation. Yeah. And we're highly moral creatures and uh, we, we're, even if we're not educated in this unconsciously biased toward people who fall within the strictures of the, the axioms axions and people who fall outside of them and we become enraged and hostile to people that fall outside of them. Mm -hmm. So let me just go over them. There's the, the maximum of quality. So quality is that you're, you, you, you communicate in a concise but complete manner the idea that you want to get across. That's also truthful. The second one is quantity that you do, you, you're concise in your communication. You're not too, too, too restricted, so it's incomplete. And you're not too verbose, so that it fills too much space. The third one is manner, which you talk in a coherent manner to communicate the idea that it's contributing to the conversation that you're having. Yeah. And then the last one is relevancy, that what you're talking about is relevant to the conversation that's mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple, a couple of those tend to break down for me. Yes. So in in uh, so I think that if you're having uh, reactions like you're describing from people, it's because you're not adequately monitoring the maxims and you're violating them, and people are are responding to mm -hmm. it. They may yeah. not be responding in the most compassionate way because they're not aware consciously what's happening to them, which is this this conversation about self compassion really be aware of what's happening. But um, I noticed in this conversation that relevancy was uh, uh, and manner were being violated because I wasn't sure how you were relating what you were saying to the topic of self-compassion, which is what the group is all talking about. Sure, yeah. Uh, and then quantity was being violated because you weren't leaving 
spaces for me to uh, contribute my side of the conversation. Okay. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. sure. So I don't think that you violated uh, quality because you were being truthful and, and open, which I appreciate. All right. So that's what I would really be paying attention to in terms of relating to other people and using uh, compassion to sense when they're they're being un they're becoming uncomfortable and then checking to see whether you're hitting on all four cylinders. Sure. There you go. All right. That. Is that a, a Buddhist uh, technique? No. Well, uh, in 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 using compassion, you would be monitoring yourself, uh, and then also monitoring the other person. Okay. So holding the space, and I like to rock back and forth. When I'm listening to the other person, I'm totally focused on how they're responding, and uh, then when it's my turn to respond, I come internally. I check in how I'm actually reacting to everything that's just happened, forming my intention and then taking my action back. And then as I take my action back, I focus again on the other person so I can see how what I'm doing is they're reacting to. So it's this movement back and forth. Good enough? Yeah, it's a good start. Thank Thanks. Um, <clears throat> Any other questions about this uh, before we do some sitting? Uh, George? Yeah? I just wondered where you picked up these uh, four aspects of emotional clarity. How did you piece that together for yourself? Um, good question. Um, Uh, what normally happens to me is I read the material in some form or another, and then because I know that I'm going to teach it and I'm going to try and teach it as a, a street discrete skill, I will formulate it into something that's actionable. So tracking the present moment and tracking the self-generated emotion, the pool, um, It's, I've been teaching this in this way for about 15 years, so I'm trying to think back to where it was that it, I, it came up. So uh, I talk about empathy as in, in three stages, but typically if you go on Google, it'll be five or eight stages. But when I reviewed the material, I thought that was too complex, and so I abbreviated it. Okay. For instance, when I teach the uh, uh, addiction material, the original research showed eight conduits, but that was too complex. And so I compressed it into four. Um, so part of, part of it is the, the way that uh, I like to communicate the information uh, so that people can understand it. And I also can hold the working model of it. Okay, great, thanks. Um, the original emotional research um, was around Paul Ekman, so you might look there. Um, it's yeah, you know, you go through these uh, this information, which just sounds like so complete and coherent, but you go through it so quickly. It's something that you know, just coming to touch upon it, we don't necessarily have reference points to understand it or revisit it. I right. just wanted to think uh, suggest maybe you should like you know write a book something manual for everyone. I'm, uh, I'm writing the addiction book as we speak. Okay. So, and then as soon as I'm finished with that, I'm going to write the attachment and meditation book. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I have a question uh -huh. for George. Um, earlier, um, you were talking about the bandwidth um, of consciousness or human consciousness. Yeah. And you... Um, compared that to something else that I missed. I was wondering what that was. Well, the, the French research group did a, a um, study to see if they could get the raw bandwidth of the, the body-mind and they, they landed at a number of 11 million. And then they did the test on the bandwidth of consciousness and for a while it was 60 and then they revised it to 50 and then they revised it to 16. 
That one you can just Google 16 bits of consciousness and you'll get all of the research on it, or okay. at least the last time I did the Thank you. What I think is so interest, interesting is, um, you know, we're, we've always been told in, 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 in these practices that the self isn't it. And then you have this research that shows it's definitely not it. <laughs> The little bitty 60 bits of self versus the 11 million bits of, of the beingness of you, right? Hilarious. So the metaphor where I say the, the consciousness is the conscious awareness is like the printer. Everything has already happened and it's been sent to the printer, and we just get the piece of paper in time to stop ourselves from doing something really stupid. If we're, we're attending to the printer, which a lot of times we're not, and so we just we just do the, the dumb thing and then after repair it later. That's why the, the, the idea of mindfulness is so useful that we're really in the present moment monitoring that whole process, which is always unconscious. And then uh, tying that to the self-compassion idea that we're present for that and we allow everything in because if we're restricted about certain ideas, we simply don't, we don't allow ourselves to know them but it's still informing the whole process of deciding what we're gonna do in response to the present moment. And uh, we have a much better chance of, of being able to operate in a skillful and ethical way if everything gets to come in and we get all of the reports on, in the printer and not just the ones that we're allowing ourselves to have. Because our behaviors is, our behavior, the decisions about what we're gonna do has all of that information and it's informed in how we respond. And our only way of monitoring that is by watching really what we do. But, uh, sometimes we behave in ways that uh, are baffling to ourselves. Why would we do that? We have a, have a sense of that. And so um, that's what we're really trying to have happen with this. So let's um, go ahead and. Oh, I have a, I have a sorry, oh, I have a quick yeah, question. Ahead. Sorry. Um, so I have been um, practicing. I'm so thankful for this series because it, this is really something I do struggle with, and I've gotten to a point where you know, I, especially when it comes to things that um, are upsetting to me, whether I'm sad or angry or, you know, sometimes it's a combination. Uh -huh. I am, I slow down and create space for awareness. And I can think of a path forward that would be optimal. But then even though I'm aware that, you know, this optimal path is best for me, actually taking those actions, like, this force of habit takes over, you know, that comfortable, even though I know it's not the right choice, I still struggle to break the, the old habit. So, you know, and then usually whatever results of my reaction, I'm like, I knew this wasn't the best thing. I knew if I would have just stuck to my more conscious decision of action, I know it would have been a better action, but there's just something in me that doesn't trust myself or, you know, just this like instinct that I can't, right. you know, I feel like I'm at the crest of crossing over to changing the behavior, but is there anything, have you experienced that? Or do you recommend anything where somebody's kind of going over this little hill of um, actually taking the right action instead of just thinking about it? Well, uh, it, you're describing um, what is quite complex. And so let me see if I can um, answer that in a way. So you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when it has contact with uh, the sensing experience, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which is then evaluated for urgency, needs urgent attention, probably doesn't matter, pleasant if there's time, uh, and then it's compared to the database that I was talking about earlier. If there's an entry in the database that is close to what's happening, then the meaning uh, attaches to that 
and it enters consciousness as that experience. Um, as we're monitoring that and we see it enter into consciousness, what we know also, what we may notice also is the intention and the action that we're gonna take is embedded in it. In order to get that process to be different by the time it, by the time we know what's happening, we have to put more entries into the database where we have to open our imagination so that it's capable of understanding and formulating different intention and action. And so the piece, uh, the way that we do that in, in, the, in the attachment work is through the ideal parent figure protocol meditation where you're visualizing alternative strategies to uh, the conditioned response. Most of the time that process happens and is complete by the time it enters into consciousness. And going back to what I said in the beginning, if, if a conceptual reality is created with no awareness of the other opportunities, uh, or the other possibilities, then we rely on that most of the time and push forward. Um, if we're habituated in responding in certain ways and we're conditioned against uh, other possibilities uh, and we haven't been able to address it, then uh, uh, I like to describe it as the authentic response arises, but if it creates a sense of fearfulness or sadness or whatever the other possibilities are, an inauthentic response arises. Mostly at the bottom of all of this is the abandonment uh, terror. If our automatic response, our actual authentic response uh, creates the perception that we could be abandoned if we express it, then the alternative to that, the inauthentic expression arises. And then you're in the conundrum. Do I push into the authentic or do I push into the inauthentic. You have to have a lot of capacity for emotional regulation to push into the authentic because it intensifies the experience of abandonment. If you push into the inauthentic, it immediately relieves the experience of abandonment. So that's, that, that's what I was hearing when you were describing it. You hit it on the nail, that's exactly it. So then you need to have support to push into the emotionally dysregulating experience of abandonment to, to present yourself authentically. If you're able to do that, of course, the, the abandonment terror turns into the terrible sadness of all of the periods in the past where you, you abandon yourself. If you can ride that out, then you come into this place of security. And if you do it enough times, the, the, the difficult response to the authentic experience diminishes over time. And then you've reclaimed that piece of authenticity and you can just be authentic. And, and then um, most of the time I have a positive response from you. But it's pushing through that conditioning to get there. Um, really what I would suggest you do is you rally people that are close to you and ask them if they'll encourage and support you to do that. And the main way that they do that is that they help you regulate the abandonment terror as you push into the authentic expression, because most of the time, uh, the abandonment terror is so intense that it derails our efforts if we don't have uh, additional support. Good enough? Perfect, thank you. Right. Um, can we meditate that, <laughs> Jake? <laughs> That's just so counterintuitive and amazing that that path exists and that you, it can be communicated like that. That's the right. first time I've, I've heard that. And oh. it's like, wow, you know, it's counterintuitive. I don't know how to, I'm just responding like, thank you for sharing that. Okay. It's amazing to think that's a possibility. Yes, indeed. It is. The abandonment terror is one of the deep drivers of a lot of stuff. We, we often go along because of that. And then we're mad later. I didn't point that, that other piece. You push into the inauthenticity, of course, it relieves the abandonment here. And you may think that it, you're even preserving the relationship, but then you're mad later because you didn't get to express yourself authentically. And, 
And if you, it was a tied to an authentic need, you didn't express your authentic need, so that wasn't met either. So you're in a place of deprivation and you're pissed off that you had to do that in order to preserve the relationship. And then that's what gets expressed, your right. anger, which is confusing to the other person because you actually went along. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, it's easy to see how that could even you know, one possibility of an inauthentic response that would suppress the abandonment issue would be working for liberation in meditation. <laughs> right. Isn't that crazy to think how that could go? You well, know? if you practice to bypass all of that stuff rather than to go into it. Uh, yeah, thank you for teaching us this because yeah. it's just, uh, you don't hear it. I haven't come across it otherwise. Shinzen used to say, uh, just get enlightened and all of that will resolve itself. And, right. That's a very classic thing to say. And, uh, and after 15 years of me saying, Shinzen, <laughs> he finally said, well, maybe you do have to attend to it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. We have to meditate now. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. Any questions or comments? Yeah, I have, a, I have two points. One, it, I think that in my question earlier, meditating on um, that feeling of being present with myself, I think will also help because it just feels really good to just be present. You feel more like your worries kind of fall away because you are present with yourself. Um, not that they fall away, but you feel more in control in a way. Right. I don't know if that's the right word. The other one was I saw myself a lot, which I didn't realize before, is this feeling of being worried for others, like worried if I'm doing enough to, when I see others in pain. And like, that's really something that uh, is overwhelmingly, I realize, holding me in a lot of pain. And then in turn, I'm reacting actually not in a compassionate way to others because I'm so frustrated that I can't help them. Right. That I start acting not helpful to them. So yeah, that's more than any other pain that I sensed. It was that. Great. Yeah, you, one of the things about compassion is that um, there's a lot of uh, sort of, uh, I'm trying to soften my expression. There is a, a suggestion that we should have boundless compassion. Um, and I think that, that that's quite a lofty goal, just as a, as a, a punch. Um, we should have boundless compassion, which would imply that we don't eat meat, maybe. Um, but also we have to deal with what compassion we actually have in the moment, which would mean that if we don't actually have boundless compassion in the moment, then we can't express it, nor should we think that there's a, that we're failing because we can't do that. We really do have to be with the experience uh, and the capacity um, that we have in the moment. And if we can't hold uh, the compassionate space, uh, then we need to disconnect and move to a sympathetic stance, the near enemy, until we can re-regulate and come back. And then I think you touched on something that I find uh, really important. If you're going to be helpful to somebody, then you actually have to be helpful. Because oftentimes uh, we're doing things that aren't actually meant to be helpful, they're meant to be controlling. And the other person experiences it that way. It's relieving our anxiety of, of worry about them, but it isn't actually helpful to them. So thank you for that. Someone else? I had a comment. Um, just thank you for that. Uh -huh. um, um, I, I, I'm not sure I can express this the way I'm feeling it because um, I was just so, oh, it was great. Um, the part, uh, you know, that may be free of pain and sorrow. I think that in the past I may have 
interpreted that as um, may it all just not not be apparent, may not may may it all just go away. And I really had this <laughs> like avoiding it, you know. Um, and of course, I'm here with the intention of not avoiding it, but right. healing it, healing it. Um, so I I just had this really cool awareness that um, when I'm saying to myself, may I be free of pain and sorrow, I'm actually inviting it to come up and um, transform and shift. Mm -hmm. and, um, I just feel really happy about that. <laughs> like, awesome. like not it's this is not about transcending it or being away from it. It's about allowing it to come and whatever needs to happen to help me be free of it. Um, and heal it. So anyway, just wanted to call Wonderful. Thank you. Someone else? All right. So this Saturday, I'm doing the third uh, day long in the, in the level one series. So we're going to be talking about disorganized attachment, uh, attachment repair. And then in the afternoon, I'll talk about ideal parent figure protocol and do a guided meditation uh, around the first the five stages of that. Um, uh, two weeks from Saturday, I'm going to do the meditation and attachment for coupling uh, day long, which is uh, talking about collaborative relationships and how to organize collaborative relationships and what they really look like um, and uh, how to uh, negotiate collaborative, secure functioning relationships, even if you haven't yet uprooted the, the deep uh, attachment conditioning. In uh, April, I'm going to be doing a uh, weekend day long, um, a weekend retreat uh, meditation and attachment prediction, um, which is a, um, the, uh, it's a Saturday from nine to four and then Sunday from nine to one. We'll go through the four modules of that program. And in March, I'm starting a level two class. Uh, if you're interested, this is all on the website. And then in June, we have a virtual retreat uh, that's coming up at the end, I think the end of June. So take a look at that uh, on the website. Uh, most of those things are up there, if not all of them. You can register for them if you want. The level two class is limited to 12 people and the, the, the retreat is limited to 24 people. So there is some scholarship support for that available. Um, I offer this class, uh, and also I have a beginner class on Tuesday night if you want to drop in. Um, both of them are on a Donna basis. Donna is the poly word for generosity. So I teach the classes uh, freely, and but I do hope that you'll make a donation to support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Any amount is appreciated. There are links on the website for that, or if you've got an email, there's probably one in there as well. Of course, if you, if you don't have uh, resources, uh, it's totally fine to participate without contributing. Uh, we as a community will support the, the practice space for you. Thank you for coming and we will see you soon, I hope. Bye now. Thanks, John. Bye.